Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard. Today, our Science Express is going to make a stop just after 3.30 with Professor Jeffrey Burkthorson. He's a professor of mechanical engineering at McGill. We're going to talk about alternate fuels. You think you can run your car or anything but gasoline, hydrogen, or electricity? Maybe so. Think rust. Well, that's going to be a pretty intriguing discussion, I can uh, tell you that. <clears throat> very, very sad to hear that Alex Trebek uh, just passed away uh, this morning. Alex, of course, was uh, for decades the host of Jeopardy, a great show. really enjoy watching that. You play along. You kind of uh, find out how dumb you are <laughs> because of so few questions you can, you can answer. It's a great show. Uh, many, many years ago, back in the 1970s, I tried out for the show, and I, I got through one preliminary round, but then I uh, lost out. I was too eager to push that button and uh, pushed it too early, too too often. But Jeopardy! is really a great show, and, and uh, Alex Trebek was a great Canadian, and he certainly is going to be missed. Other than that, what else happened this past week? Let me see. Did anything happen? Oh, yeah. There was that election. Well, I was pretty elated by the results. And uh, as many of you know uh, who have been following me on Facebook, and I have uh, something like 25,000 followers on Facebook, I, I have uh, not been symp sympathetic to President Trump uh, ever. I actually did follow his career from long before he was president when when uh, he had all his bankruptcies in Atlantic City and uh, when he showed his kind of callous nature on The Apprentice. Uh, but the, the reason that I have been so opposed to him is, is uh, essentially uh, the fact that he's the antithesis of everything that I think I stand for and I've tried to do. I, I promote science. He promotes uh, pseudoscience. I promote evidence, and he doesn't uh, give a damn about uh, about uh, evidence. I, um, I I think I fight prejudice, and I can't say that he does the same thing. No, there were not fine people on both sides. Then, of course, there, there's the ridiculous uh, business about uh, not recognizing climate change, about loosening the regulations on, on industry to allow more, more pollution. And then, of course, there are all of the, the, the lies, 20,000 of which have been cataloged by the, the, the Washington Post. And uh, his bumbling of the uh, COVID crisis, I, I think, has been just uh, uh, unacceptable. His uh, lack of coming up with a health plan in the U.S., uh, something that he, he said he would do within two weeks of being uh, elected or, or being uh, in, in the White House, that, of course, has not, not happened. Uh, so all of those things have, have you know, kind of conspired uh, to to make me uh, go for Biden. I, I think that uh, Biden is a very good man. I, I think he's going to have a chance at healing America. Uh, he's not going to be able to produce any miracles because there are no miracles to be produced. 
but I think at least he will be honest. Uh, I, I think he will have a fresh approach of, about um, distancing and wearing of, of, of masks. And uh, I, I think it's going to be so refreshing to, to hear a president who can speak and, and articulate and put together words and, and uh, uh, not call people names that is act presidential. So, yes, I'm very happy with the way that this, uh, this came out. All right, let's get down to some matters at hand. <clears throat> you know, when I first got interested in ginger, and I'm talking about this because uh, I asked a question this morning on the trivia show about what the link is between ginger and eels. Yeah, it's a bizarre kind of link. Anyway, the first time I got interested in ginger was uh, in um, 2013. And that was on a trip to New York City. And I was interested in, in visiting the Hall of Science, which is in Flushing Meadow. And it's a museum, it's a science museum. And the reason I want to see this because it actually uh, was first built on the site of the 1964 New York World's Fair. And that was the first time that I ever went to New York in, uh, in 1964. Uh, first time I ever saw a Broadway show, and I went to see the World's Fair, and there were lots of really neat things at that World's Fair. I mean, I, I really remember the DuPont Pavilion and the wonderful world of, of chemistry and the dancing molecules in, inside, but the whole World's Fair was, was really neat. And there was also this um, um, place called uh, uh, Rocket Park, and Rocket Park uh, at that time in 1964 uh, had an exhibit, and I was very much interested already at that time in the space program. So I was impressed by the rockets that were on display, and also the Mercury capsule, which had carried astronaut Scott Carpenter into Earth orbit, and uh, that was in 1962. So I was very interested in this, and, and uh, I remember seeing that uh, Mercury capsule close up and, and, you know, marking. I mean, this, you know, this was not a replica. This was the thing that had been in space. And uh, to be honest with you, it looked very primitive. Uh, it, it looked like it was kind of made of a corrugated steel and uh, it did not look like a very sophisticated piece of equipment, which, of course, it was. So anyway... Uh, I was uh, keen to see this rocket park again because I knew that it had been resuscitated when, when the, uh, the science museum that was built on the site uh, of the World's Fair uh, was uh, uh, rebuilt. I mean, it, it, the, the pavilion had kind of deteriorated and it had to be rebuilt to become the science museum. And uh, gee, I, you know, I really was not uh, disappointed. Uh, there were pristine versions of the Titan II and the Atlas rockets, and those are the ones that had carried the uh, uh, Gemini astronauts uh, and the Mercury capsules into into space. And the the science, the Hall of Science, was really neat. There were exhibits about molecules and microbes, inventions, but uh, you know what really got my attention, believe it or not, was an exhibit called Gingerbread Lane which was a gingerbread village that was created by a chef, John Lovich. And uh, according to the description there, it weighed one and a half tons and covered 300 square feet. 
uh, 300 square feet is a lot of, of area. And I remember just walking around this village made totally of, uh, of gingerbread. And indeed, it had been certified by the Guinness World Records as the largest ever gingerbread village. Well, gingerbread can be uh, traced back to the 11th century, and it's been a holiday favorite ever since. Uh, not only does ginger impart flavor, it also acts as a preservative. And the tradition of making gingerbread houses seems to be connected to the Hansel and Gretel story. That's the Grimm Brothers fairy tale, uh, in which two children are abandoned in a forest. They come upon an edible house that's decorated with, with candy. And when this story got published, German bakers took to baking gingerbread houses. Uh, you know, they kind of capitalized on the story's popularity. All right, but what is the relationship between ginger and eels? Well, you know what? I'm going to uh, uh, keep you waiting on that one and uh, going to check out traffic first. And after traffic, after you've been sitting on pins and needles waiting for this answer, we'll come back and clarify the relationship between ginger and eels. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. You know, I don't normally listen to the commercials, but uh, there was a commercial that we had just had on for Subway where they talked about the foot-long uh, subway. Believe it or not, there was a lawsuit that was brought against uh, Subway because someone had measured and the foot-long was less than a foot-long. I mean, this kind of frivolous lawsuit is, is ridiculous. Uh, it was actually a class-action lawsuit. And there, there have been a number, mostly in the U.S., of these kind of silly lawsuits. There was a lawsuit against uh, uh, Kellogg's manufacturers of Fruit Loops the claimant said that there was no fruit in Fruit Loops. Well, fruit is spelled F-R-O-O-T on the box. What kind of nitwit would think that, that something that is called F-R-O-O-T and is multicolored uh, is going to have real fruit in it? So anyway, that also was, uh, was dismissed. Uh, let me get back to uh, what we were talking about with ginger. But first, also, let me throw out a question at you guys. The first type of this product was introduced in Philadelphia in the 1880s. The active ingredient was zinc oxide. So the first of this type of product introduced in Philadelphia in the 1880s, active ingredient was zinc oxide. What was this type of product? Give us a call, 514-790-800. Incidentally, you can also uh, text us at 514-800. Okay, I think we have Ed on the line here. Ed. Good afternoon, uh, Dr. Jones. A question yes, about this. Uh, What's up? Hello? Yes. mask. Go ahead. I'd like to uh, know... Uh, uh, if you can still use the regular blue and white, uh, you know, one-time use uh, uh, mask without any problem? That is a three-layer mask. Is it a three-layer Yes, it is. It has three layers of polypropylene, yeah. Okay. And they cannot be reused, doctor, can it? Yes, you can be. You can reuse it. You can put it in a paper bag, put it aside for a couple of days, and then you can reuse it. Oh, the virus uh, it dies after three days yes. or something? Yes, yes. Okay, another quick safety thing that I'd like to talk to you about after discussing with you, I, I purchased an induction cooktop. Uh -huh. uh, very efficient, very nice, according to you. 
but I was having a little problem with this uh, stainless steel pot, which had the magnetic uh, bottom. You know, I tested with a magnet. Yeah, yeah. And I used to water, boil water and then filter it after cooling it. But a week later, this this might help some other people because uh, it's a safety device, safety thing. Uh, the handle started um, getting a little loose, and there was a scum on the water. I mean, the, the, the handle of the the handle of the, of the pot. pot. Yeah, started getting a little loose, and there was a little bit of scum on the water. So after a quick noticing it, and I checked it close by, the rivets on the handle were made of an aluminum alloy instead of stainless steel. And that started disintegrating in the water. Really? Are you sure that, that uh, it wasn't a scale deposit that you were getting in the water from evaporating? No, no. I used, to, I used to clean the scale with the vinegar and, and, and um, you know, scrub it and then uh, reuse it. But it happened after a week of use. And then, then the rivets, I looked at the rivets and they were all uh, uh, eaten away or disintegrated in the water. Really? Yeah. Very interesting. But they were made I, of aluminum. I, I really don't understand why that would happen in a. Yeah. Uh, they made of aluminum. I think a different metal, two different metals. Having some kind of a problem with the induction uh, magnetic. Well, uh, you, you know when you have to, when you have two different metals together, of course you get an electric current between the two metals. You know this is a classic case of what happens if you have amalgam fillings and you you uh, chew on aluminum foil. You can get some very bad pain in the tooth because of, of the uh, reaction between the uh, aluminum and the metals in the in the filling. Yeah. So but, uh, it, it may be that you're noticing something like that, uh, which the handle uh, will lose after, right? Like which, which the induction would increase. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to ask um, an electrochemist about that. But yeah, I think you but may my, have uh, actually found something. Uh, but of course, it would be particular to that that pot. That particular pot, yeah. because I, I have others which are um, like uh, electrically welded together, uh -huh. and then they don't have any. Problem. They don't have that problem. Yeah. Okay. Very. And even my frying pan, you know, with, yeah, with yeah. The rivets on it, but the rivets are are stainless steel rivets. Interesting. So they don't interesting don't uh, observation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Take my call. Yeah. Okay. Have a nice. Okay. Thanks very much. Okay. Well, let me get back to my uh, ginger story because I'm sure you've been waiting with bated breath for uh, for this one. Uh, all right. Well. When we refer to ginger, it's really the underground stem of a plant that's native to Asia and has a long history of use not only as a spice but also as a folkloric medicine, mostly for digestive problems and, and nausea. Uh, as you expect for any plant, uh, ginger uh, has a chemical composition that involves a large number of compounds and the pungency of fresh ginger, ginger as well as the anti-nausea effect, uh, are thought to be due to gingerol, one specific compound. And when uh, this is heated, the gingerol is converted to some other compounds like zingarone and shogaols, and those also contribute to flavor and, and pungency. Uh, there are several lab studies that have examined ginger's potential for biological activity, and they found some antibacterial, anti-cancer effects, but that's not surprising. There are numerous compounds that have such activity in vitro, that is in the lab, but they never uh, transmit to you know any clinical effect. Uh, but they're, they're, 
is certainly something to treating nausea during pregnancy and chemotherapy with uh, with ginger. But we're talking about the real ginger, eating you know a, a couple of grams of, of real ginger. Um, anyway, ginger also has some irritant properties, uh, something that once found an unusual application. In the 16th and 17th centuries, ginger was used to make a horse carry its tail high and move in a more lively fashion. How? By whittling a piece of ginger into a suppository-like shape and, believe it or not, inserting it into the horse's rectum. Horse traders would do this to make an older horse behave like a younger one or to temporarily liven up a sick animal. And this process was known as feeging, F-E-A-G-U-I-N-G. There was something else that was used in a similar fashion, a live eel. Gingerol in ginger is a chemical irritant. And let's face it, a wriggling eel in the anus is certainly a physical irritant. Uh, apparently, although it is now illegal, ginger-based creams are applied to the rectum of show horses. And uh, if it's detected, the horse is disqualified. So there you go, the link between ginger and eels. What a visual mental picture of uh, this eel in a horse's uh, rectum. Anyway, uh, we're going to take a break here. We will be back uh, with Professor Burke Thorson. We're going to talk about combustion. Uh, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I will get to Professor Burke Thorson in just a sec. But first, uh, I think Mark may have an answer to the question that I asked. Hey, Mark. Good afternoon, Dr. Joe. What do you think? How are you? I, I, I'm not near a computer or anything. I'm pretty sure that it's Noxzema. No, it's not Noxzema. Oh, it was not Noxzema. Yeah. No. Oh, but okay. you, you know why Noxzema was called Noxzema? No, I have no idea. It knocks out eczema. That was the oh, idea. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Hey, Dr. Joe, can I ask you one question? Yeah. I have I have a box of Cheez-Its. You know those little crispy crackers that are. There's an ingredient called. Uh, hang on, chymosin. C H Y M O S I N. What is chymosin? Yes, chymosin is is an enzyme that is used to curdle milk to make cheese. It's okay. the it's the most common way of making cheese. Okay, and annatto is a coloring, right? Yes. Oh, okay. Annatto is a color. Well, thanks a lot, Doctor Joe. Okay. Have a week. Okay. Take care of yourself. All right. On the line is Professor Jeff Burkthorson. McGill University is a mechanical engineering professor, and we're going to talk combustion. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Good, good. Combustion, one of my favorite topics. Uh, it's always been uh, several reasons. One, of course, is that we, as a human body, are an internal combustion engine, right? We burn our food and produce carbon dioxide water and uh, derive energy from that. The same kind of process goes on in a car or, or in, a, in an airplane, anywhere where you have combustion. And uh, there's a lot of research, of course, around this area because when you have combustion, you need fuel. Human body uses food as fuel. Car engines use gasoline as fuel. Uh, they can use electricity. They can use hydrogen. Or maybe... They can use rust, which is what uh, brings us to the discussion here. And uh, Professor Burke Thorson is an expert on combustion, especially involving metals. A very unusual combustion process, right, when we talk about internal combustion engines. 
We're definitely not used to thinking about metals as something that even burns, are we? No, we're not. So what is the idea here about possibly using a metal to run an internal combustion engine, possibly run a car? Yeah, so the idea that uh, that we have is that we're looking for alternatives to fossil fuels so that we can decarbonize our economy and have prosperity into the future. And so what are the ways that we can do that is that we need to take clean energy, clean electricity, um, and turn it into something that we can store and move around to drive our cars and our trucks and our ships uh, and, and all of these equipment uh, that rely on fossil fuels today. And so in addition, of course, to batteries, which can be used for some of these applications, we need things that store more energy in the amount of space. And that's where metals really um, stand out as something that can hold a lot of energy in a very compact form. Of course, anyone who has ever witnessed fireworks, as we did uh, last night at uh, Biden's celebration, uh, anyone who has witnessed that has seen metals burn. That's it. Right? Because the, the bright silvery color is usually due to magnesium, and uh, there are copper compounds that, that will burn, uh, barium compounds produce a nice green. So there we have combustion. And that is the combustion, the kind of combustion you're talking about, right? Where you have a metal and burns to uh, form its oxide. But how, how can this be practically harnessed? Yeah, and just to, just to comment on the, uh, you know, people have seen the combustion of metals in fireworks, but these people have also mostly held the combustion of metals in their hands in the form of a sparkler. Uh, and so uh, we've, we've, we're used to seeing metal combustion in these kind of fireworks and, and pyrotechnic displays, but not really to think about it as something that we could use. So that's the idea that we have is, okay, we can burn iron and make rust as the product, and it burns with the air, and it produces heat, and that heat can then be captured and harnessed to make electricity, just like we, uh, we do it inside of our internal combustion engines today. Um, and it may not work so well to burn iron inside of a car, because then all that rust is going to clog up the engine you know, make the pistons and the cylinders not move well. So we're trying to figure out a technology of how we can capture that heat and turn it into electricity. And we can do that with steam engines uh, going back basically to the start of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we had coal-fired steam engines. So our vision is let's go to an aluminum-fired or an iron-fired steam engine. Now, when we're talking about uh, aluminum wire in, in this context, we're not talking about giant chunks of the metal, right? We're talking about very finely powdered metal. Yeah, so if you take a large chunk of, of iron, it, it will rust slowly, but it will certainly catch fire and burn. So in order to get it to burn, you do have to get it into small enough pieces. And so in the lab, we might burn something that's, uh, you know, on the order of, of micron size. I mean, the, the, the powders that we're burning would be something that would have a consistency like flour, uh, mm -hmm. we would say. So it's, it's some type of powder of that sort of uh, shape. Of course, you can also melt and spray the metals too, so you, you can use them just like a liquid fuel, but you have to heat them up first because they're solids under normal conditions. And of course, the reason that uh, fine powders work so well is because they have a giant surface area and you have a lot of contact with oxygen of, of the air. And that's it. Yeah, and I, I know people are sometimes confused uh, about this business of how it is that a, a you know, fine powder has a larger uh, surface area. And what I always tell them is think of a cube and cut that cube in half. So now you have two new surfaces that you didn't have before. Cut each of those in half. Now you have four more surfaces that you didn't have before. And if you imagine doing this odd, you know, nausea until you've got a powder, then you have a, a giant surface area and a lot of contact with oxygen of the air, which is what you want for combustion. 
Exactly. So where where do you see this uh, being used? I mean, uh, obviously, we're not talking about putting the powder into a car as of now. We're talking about using that powder in some combustion to make electricity, that in the form of batteries in a car, right? Yeah. So you can imagine uh, that that for you know trucks, heavy duty trucks that need to be able to drive a certain distance, that the batteries may not give you the range that you're looking for. And so you could imagine some of these systems. Uh, being used there to range, but where we really see it making sense is if you need power in an off-grid location, so you're a remote community or a remote mining operator or a ship that's traversing the ocean, you can't connect to the electricity grid to charge up your batteries, and so you need something to, to carry around that energy with you, and so that's the type of system that, that we're thinking, and like looking big and into the future, well, let's store energy from Canada. We can produce much more clean energy than we can consume in Canada. Let's produce these metal fuels and ship them across the globe and sell our excess clean energy rather than selling it in the form of fossil fuels like we do today. Um, so there's no reason that we can't have energy trade in the future. It just can be in a different form, and it doesn't necessarily have Now, of course, it always comes down to economics, right? Everything does. Of course. So, So what are the economics here? Because... I mean, obviously, uh, you have to have the iron available in a relatively cheap uh, way. Uh, and iron has so many other uses as well. So the, the question is, could the iron powder here be cheap enough to make this viable? Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. If you look at iron cost today and you just imagine that you're going to buy iron from the market and use it and burn it to make electricity, the electricity that you produce would be more expensive than what we have today, but not a huge amount. Um, but one of the things we have to keep in mind of the concept of metal fuels is that when we burn that iron into rust, we haven't lost any of the material. Um, and so that the, the rust is captured at the end can be recycled. And so really what's the, the question is not for what the cost of iron, but what does it cost to recycle that iron over and over again, and, uh, and how does that compare? And so the economics don't look bad um, at this point, but what's really going to drive this transition? And it's the same paradigm shift that's happening towards hydrogen and towards any of the sort of clean technologies is the fact that renewable electricity from solar, from wind, um, and from other sources that, that are being developed, the costs are just dropping so low and the cost of electricity will be so cheap open up the possibility of making fuels from that cheap electricity and, uh, and having them be economic fossil fuels. And that's basically the opposite of the current paradigm, which is in most places of the world, we use fossil fuels and burn them to make electricity, like in a coal plant or a natural gas plant. Okay, hold that thought. We've got to take a, a bit of a break here, uh, check traffic, and we'll, uh, we'll talk a little bit about how you go back to iron from iron oxide. All right. My guest is uh, is Professor Jeff Perthorson. He's a mechanical engineering professor at McGill. We're talking combustion. We'll be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I asked a question about uh, what product introduced in the late 1800s that had zinc oxide as the active ingredient. What was that product? That this was a prototype for what? Many people have written in, texted, and they all agree that it's uh, suntan lotions or sunscreens. No, zinc oxide is indeed found in, in sunblocks, but it wasn't used for that back in the 1800s. It was a different kind of product. So what product was the first one to use zinc oxide? 
and it wasn't suntan lotion, it wasn't eczema cream, as someone had uh, had guessed. It was something else. My guest is uh, Professor Jeff uh, Pergdorsen, and he's a mechanical engineering prof at McGill. We're talking about combustion and uh, the possibility of using iron as a fuel because when iron burns, it forms iron oxide and that releases energy. That energy can be captured in a steam turbine and turned into electricity. So, Jeff, I mean, the, uh, the problem now comes down to the used iron oxide being reconverted back into iron, which essentially is the same process that is used to make iron in the first place from iron ore, right? And so the question is, how do we do that without carbon emissions? Because right. since the dawn of the Iron Age, we've been using coal or charcoal in the original days to do that uh, process of taking iron oxide or iron ore and making iron and steel out of it, um, driven by fossil fuels primarily. And so how do we do that? And, and there is technologies now that can do that through hydrogen as an intermediate step. So you could make hydrogen with clean energy and then use that to make your iron um, and there are demonstration projects of doing that at scale uh, being developed, one specifically in Sweden. Um, but the other thing that can be done is actually you can directly use electricity to, to do that. And there's uh, companies that are developing those technologies now. Uh, one of them, I believe, is Boston Metals um, that is working on a technology to take electricity and take iron oxide in, and iron comes out on the other side. Now, again, the question is, is is this economically feasible in terms of the amount of electricity you have to use to, in order to do that? That's right. And that comes down in some sense to the efficiency at which you can produce that fuel. And so it, it looks like producing metals from electricity can be comparable to producing hydrogen from water uh, via electrolysis or any of the other sort of zero carbon fuel ideas all rely on this, you know, the fact that you will in the end have less electricity where you want it than what you right, started with right. on the main electrical grid. Um, but that cost is is rewarded by the fact that now you have energy in a form that you can move around and take advantage of whenever you want it. Uh, um, similar to, to today, if we buy a, a AA battery, I mean, it's, its value is or its cost is much higher than the amount of energy that it contains, but it's so useful to us that we don't worry about that. Right. Now, we keep talking about iron uh, in this uh, research, but of course, there are many other metals that will burn. Uh, those of you who remember the launches of the space shuttle, the spectacular launch, well, the, the brilliant glow that came out of the solid uh, fuel boosters on the side of the, of the main uh, fuel tank, uh, that was filled with aluminum and uh, ammonium perchlorate, which is the oxidizing agent. So what you saw there was the combustion of, of, of aluminum. And if any of you remember the in old-fashioned photography when they would hold up this thing in their hand and it would make a flash to take a picture to bright enough light, that was magnesium powder. So, Jeff, what, what metals uh, besides iron are, are viable for these kind of processes economically and practically? Yeah, so, I mean, you, you, you talked about two of the, the most promising, magnesium and, uh, and aluminum, um, and uh, both of those burn significantly hotter than does iron, and so that's good. It tells to the, the fact that they have a lot of energy. That also makes the engineering a little bit challenging. But there are groups that are definitely looking at how we can directly use uh, aluminum or magnesium as a fuel. But interestingly, those other metals, they can actually be reacted with water. Um, and they grab the oxygen off of that water, off of that H2O, and release hydrogen as the product. So you can move around aluminum and then make hydrogen when you want it. Um, and that's another option that rather than directly burning the aluminum with air, you could react it with water, make hydrogen, 
and then burn the hydrogen in an mm -hmm. engine or a fuel cell or whatever technology you want to use. Now, how, how far are we from having a, a practical metal-based engine? Well, so the, there was a team at the, from the University of Eindhoven that just this week uh, announced uh, powering about 100 kilowatts of power to a Dutch brewery based on burning iron fuels. So it's not generating electricity, it's generating heat and steam for the brewery. Uh, but uh, there is a practical you know, industrial application now already of, of this concept. Um, and so how far are we away? Well, I'm sure it's, it's 10 years and the time frame is, is faster or slower depending on how quickly we move on it because this is one that has totally flown under the radar as an option. I mean, you just don't hear about people talking about metals as a fuel um, in, as part of our energy transition these days. So we want to see that... Uh, no, the only connection that we've had before to this technology was worrying about our car rusting away, right? Exactly. <laughs> Which, incidentally, we have to worry a lot less about now, right? Because of all the the technology involved in the in the anti rust paint uh, paint that is used and the sacrificial uh, uh, anodes in inside of the car. I mean, we don't see cars rusting these days like they used to. That's it. Yeah, and and, and you know that all that that same electrochemistry of preventing rust and oxidation, that's sort of the things that we're trying to take advantage of, um, at least in the metal-water reactions. We're trying to enhance that corrosion reaction, if, if you will. Well, very good. So thanks very much for that, Jeff. And, and uh, you know, it's always pleasing to see that there's more to energy production than just the usual things that we normally talk about, you know, whether it be wind or tides or... or uh, um, anything else that's being looked at as novel technology uh, no one ever talks about burning iron but uh, obviously this is interesting and a viable possibility so thanks a lot for that and we'll uh, as soon as you got something that's working we'll check back with you again Perfect. It'll be our pleasure. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Dr. Joe. That Bye. was Professor Jeff Burkthorson, who's a mechanical engineering prof at, uh, at McGill. Okay. Let me just see if um, uh, a couple of people have answered to my question. Alan? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Uh, would it be eczema? No. All right. Okay. Let me go to, uh, is that Jerry? Yes. Hi, Dr. Hi. Joe. Would it be a suppository? No, it's not a suppository. Oh, not a suppository. There, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks. All right. So we're asking about zinc oxide and was the first product that it was uh, used in. And uh, maybe I give you a clue. Uh, zinc oxide has antibacterial properties. All right. Let me go to Steve. Steve. Hi. Um, I have a question about ventilation in relation to the virus. Yeah. Uh, specifically, we're seeing more and more uh, buses with windows that are sealed shut uh, because they're air conditioned and they don't want passengers opening the windows. Yeah. Um, is this is this a problem? Because I mean, it, it would seem to me that it would be much more efficient to prevent the virus transmission. But those those buses do have a ventilation system and quite a sophisticated one, very similar to what you have in airplanes. They're bringing air from outside? Yes, they're bringing air from outside. Uh, yeah. What about in the winter? Yeah. It's the same. I mean, they will... It, the they're, air heating, they're heating the air from outside? Yes, they're heating the air from the outside, yes. So the ventilation yeah. is sufficient? 
to... Well, I mean, no, nobody has really studied whether or not, you know, buses that are ventilated or not uh, transmit it better or worse. But, uh, yeah, but those new buses are ventilated. Okay. Thank okay, you very thanks much. very much. And unfortunately, that is it. Uh, we have uh, run out of time. But, of course, we will be back with you same time, same station. Don't forget to check out my Facebook page. you find it. Just look at my name. And our website, mcgill.ca slash OSS. That's where you can sign up for our weekly free newsletter. So we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>